Hello all, this is John N. here, and I just want to take a moment and thank all of you for your patience and your good cheer during our problems of the last week, and wanted to let you know that we are back on track for our last two episodes of Season 3. And with that, I have a bit of an ask for all of you. As John and I start to plan Season 4, we would really absolutely love to hear from all of you. What would you like us to talk about? Are there particular topics you would like us to cover? Are there particular shows? In any case, please feel free to post on our Facebook page, send us a tweet, private message, an email, and all of that information can be found in the podcast. We hope to hear from you, and we're looking forward to bringing you some more of what we do in Season 4. Hi, I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hello, John. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's finally starting to cool in here, which is exciting. No, that's great. We are definitely in the middle of fall here in Texas. It's been cold. It's been a little wet. We've gotten down into what I would say were almost cold temperatures at night. And this is this is my time of year. I'm I am in love with it. I am living for it and I am completely happy with it. Yes, we are almost at the point where it is consistently appropriate to be able to wear a sweater, and that is something that I very much look forward to, except in the rooms that I work in, where they seemingly like to keep the temperature hovering right around 95 degrees. To be fair, you do work in dance rooms, and maybe dancers like it warmer? But surely... The individual providing live music in the corner's comfort is more important than the 30 people working their butts off. Oh, of well, duh. <laughs> okay, so after our lovely weather report, what show are we talking about today, John? Today, we are talking about Gypsy, with music by Jewel Stein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and a book by Arthur Lawrence loosely based on the memoirs of Gypsy Rose Lee. Gypsy opened at the Broadway Theater on May 21st, 1959, before transferring to the Imperial Theater in August of 1960. The show ran 702 performances before closing on March 25th, 1961. Gypsy was directed and choreographed by Jerome Robbins, with music direction by Milton Rosenstock. The original Broadway cast included Ethel Merman as Rose, Sandra Church as Louise, Lane Bradbury as Dainty June, Jack Klugman as Herbie, Paul Wallace as Tulsa, Maria Karnilova as Tessie Tura, Faith Dane as Mazeppa, and Chotsey Foley as Electra. Gypsy was nominated for eight Tony Awards, but shockingly won none. Rose and her two daughters, Baby June and Louise, 
play the vaudeville circuit around the United States in the early 1920s. Rose, the archetype of a stage mother, is aggressive and domineering, pushing her children to perform. While June is an extroverted, talented child star, Louise is shy and withdrawn. The Kitty Act has one song, May We Entertain You, that they sing repeatedly, with June always as the centerpiece, and Louise often as one of the boys. Rose has big dreams for the girls, but encounters setbacks, such as attempting to borrow money from her father. When Rose meets a former agent, Herbie, she persuades him to become their manager using her seductive and feminine wiles. The show fast forwards, through the power of dance, several years. The girls grow up and June has a chance to perform for Mr. Goldstone, owner of the Orpheum Circuit. Meanwhile, Louise celebrates her birthday alone and asks her birthday present, a lamb, just how old she is this year. After Rose rejects Herbie's marriage proposal, he considers leaving, but she asserts that he could never get away from her. Now billed as Dainty June and her farm boys, the act finally performs on the Orpheum circuit. June is soon offered a place at a performing arts school after an audition. However, Rose turns this down, refusing to break up the act. Louise and June fantasize what life would be like if Rose were married and finished with show business. A few months later, and still on the road, Tulsa, one of the boys from the act, confides in Louise that he has been working on his own act, and Louise fantasizes that she and he could do the act together. Shortly after, June is missing, and in a note, she explains that she has grown sick of her mother and the endless tour, and has eloped with Tulsa, and that they will do the new act. Rose is hurt, but then optimistically vows that she will make Louise a star, proclaiming that everything's coming up roses. Time moves forward again. Louise is now a young woman, and Rose has built a pale imitation of the Dainty June act for her. Using all girls, Rose and Herbie try valiantly to sell Madame Rose's Tory Adorables to a fading vaudeville industry. With no vaudeville venues left, Louise and her second-rate act wind up accidentally booked at a burlesque house in Wichita, Kansas, as a means to deter police raids. Rose is anguished as she sees what a booking in burlesque means to her dreams of success. But Louise persuades her that two weeks pay for a new act is better than unemployment. As they are introduced to Louise, three of the strippers on the bill advise her on what it takes to become a successful stripper, a gimmick. Something that makes your strip special. Backstage, Rose proposes marriage to Herbie. He asks her to break up the act and let Louise have a normal life, and she reluctantly accepts, agreeing to marry the day after their show closes. On the last day of the booking, the star stripper in the burlesque show is arrested for solicitation. Desperate, Rose cannot resist the urge to give Louise another nudge towards stardom, and she volunteers Louise to do the strip tease as a last-minute replacement. Louise is sad at what she's being pushed to do for her mother's love, 
and Herbie is disgusted at how low Rose has stooped, and he finally walks out on her. Although reluctant, Louise goes on, assured by Rose that she didn't actually strip, but simply walk elegantly and tease by dropping a single shoulder strap. Shy and hesitant, she sings a titillating version of the old Kitty Act song, May We Entertain You. She removes only her glove, but she speaks directly to her audience, which becomes her gimmick. Louise becomes secure, always following her mother's advice to make them beg for more and then don't give it to them. The song becomes brasher and brassier in a montage, and more and more articles of clothing come off as the show progresses. Ultimately, Louise becomes a major burlesque star and does not need her mother any longer. Rose and Louise, who has become the sophisticated Gypsy Rose Lee, have a bitter argument. Rose, feeling sad, useless, and bitter, reveals that the true motivation for all her actions has been to live vicariously through her daughters, to chase the stardom she wanted for herself, not her children. She realizes that she has driven away June, Herbie, and now possibly Louise. In some incarnations of the show, this leads to a reconciliation between Rose and Louise. In others, the two remain estranged. I want to put you on the spot and circle back to something I commented on in the rundown. This was nominated for eight Tony Awards and won none. Do we know what show or shows beat Gypsy? Because, you know, we're talking about this show now and it has become just kind of an iconic musical, uh, especially mama wrote and her big songs everything's coming up roses and roses turn like these are hugely iconic numbers that everyone knows today and many many of our history's greatest leading ladies have tackled to various degrees of success and it is shocking to me from our historical viewpoint now that this show didn't win any tonys in its time so the answer is it took two musicals to beat it took, and to be fair, one of them was the sound of music, which love it, hate it, whatever. Yeah, I get. Okay, fine. Fiorello, eh, less so, but at the time it would have been incredibly topical. Um, you're looking at Mary Martin for best leading actress um, in Sound of Music um, against Ethel Merman <sighs> and Carol Burnett in Once Upon a Mattress. Which, again, right, you so know. this was a good this was a good theater year. All yeah, right. this was a very good theater. And and looking at this, uh, Sound of Music took Best Featured Actress in a Musical with Patricia Newway, uh, Best Featured Actor uh, Jack Klugman Herbie lost out to Tom Tom Bosley in Fiorello as, as Fiorello. Yeah, um, as Fiorello. That's a, that's a solid role. Um. Fiorello, looking at it, kind of cleaned up that year. They also got Best Direction of a Musical over Jerome Robbins in Gypsy. Um, this was still when they were doing Best Music Director. The Sound of Music took that. Uh, Sound of Music took Best Scenic Design. So, uh, let's see. And then it looks like in the design awards it was actually kind of dominated by the plays that year saratoga toys in the attic uh the miracle worker 
so it it makes sense um like it was it was a it was a rough year for them you know that there was some, yes, there was some there was some steep competition very steep competition and you know it's funny because one of the things we were talking about in in kind of our our discussion before recording was how some view Gypsy is kind of the pinnacle of the Golden Age musical now. And it's just interesting to look back. And while it was nominated for these awards, the overwhelming sentiment wasn't necessarily the same. While we tend to put Gypsy on a pedestal now, that wasn't the case when it premiered in, in 1959. It was a good show. It was good enough, obviously, to be nominated for these awards. But it just ended up, you know, and to be fair... Sound of Music is about as iconic as it comes for music theater in the United States in the 20th century. I get that. I mean, it's not to be too hyperbolic, but also kind of being hyperbolic. Sound of Music is kind of like the golden age Hamilton, where it just became so ubiquitous. It spawned a movie, it spawned revivals, it spawned tours, it spawned a mediocre live version on NBC. I mean, it's just okay. Omnipresent. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry because it's where we are right now. I have to stop and say, have you seen the absolute nightmare fuel that are the commercials for the upcoming live Annie with bald Harry Connick Jr.? Because it is horrifying. I have not. And I will fully admit it's probably partially because I'm a cord cutter and don't currently have any actual cable at the moment. And now I'm very happy because I haven't seen that. And that terrifies me. Yeah. I mean, whether you like Annie or not, like fine, whatever. I don't particularly care. Bald Harry Connick Jr. does not need to be unleashed upon this world. Stop nope. trying to do this to us, NBC. It is not worth it. Nope. Um, but before we get too astray from Gypsy, um, like I like I said, there are there are sources, there are you know it, academic sources as they are and such who consider this one of the, the the pinnacles of the Golden Age musical. From a complete package standpoint, I find it hard to disagree with that. When you take the book and the characterizations and the lyrics and the music and the staging and everything. This is an amazing show. However, when you look at some of the component parts, it's it tells a slightly different story to not be too puntastic about it. For this being known as just an amazing musical, it doesn't actually have a ton of music in it. There are very, there are maybe a dozen songs in the show, and that might even be slightly generous. Yeah, it, it does not have a, a lot of music, as you point out, particularly in the second act, there is a, a rather large dearth of music. However, every song in this show is a great song. Like, there they're Hands all down, yeah. good. There aren't even like the okay filler songs that you see in a lot of shows. Every bit of music in the show is great music. Oh, and I 100% agree with you there. And maybe that's what we're seeing. There isn't a ton of music because there wasn't a ton of filler. I mean, it's no secret. This show was written as a star vehicle for Ethel Merman. She got to pick the book writer. She got to pick the composer. 
there's actually a, a, an interesting story about how originally Stephen Sondheim wanted to write the music for this show, but Ethel Merman said, no, you will bring in Jules Stein to write the music. Stephen Sondheim can write the lyrics. And if you don't like it, well, then I'm not going to do the show. And so they're like, okay, well, we're bringing in Jules Stein. And that's how it was. And to be fair, it was the right choice. At this point, Jules Stein was an established composer in the music theater sphere, well-known, well-respected, well-rewarded. And at this point, Stephen Sondheim had done lyrics for West Side Story, had found some minor success with his student shows and workshop shows, but it wasn't until 1961, so two years after the fact, where Stephen Sondheim had his first hit with A Funny Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum. So when you think of Sondheim, this is very early. Like, even with West Side Story, as much of a hit as it was and how beloved it had become, he was still only credited as the lyricist. Leonard Bernstein wrote every note for that show. And so it makes sense for Ethel Merman to come in and say, no, we're going to reuse this guy who I know, who I like, who writes well, and that's that. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got to cut their teeth and, you know, how great would it be to have to cut your teeth writing lyrics for Ethel Merman and Gypsy? Like, right. oh, what's suffering for me? <laughs> I mean, and, and to be fair, they're brilliant lyrics. It's brilliant music. It's brilliant lyrics. It all works together. And I guess when it comes down to this concept of it being the, the pinnacle, the height, the, the textbook example of the Golden Age musical, it is in the concept of the total work everything about it its efficiency how how well it goes together how well the characters are written out how well the music's and in and, and all of that it it is the classic example of a show that is more than the sum of its parts yes i agree i can't argue with that you know we approach this from a musical point of view and every single song is great I do wish there was more. It is also just kind of fascinating to wonder how very, very different this show would have been if Sondheim had been the one writing the songs. I mean, he, at this point, he wasn't the cerebral composer that we're going to meet later on in shows like A Little Night Music or Into the Woods. But even so, his music is generally more complex than what we have from Gypsy. And I don't say that to be belittling to the music of Gypsy because part of its effectiveness is it's just bold, straightforward style. But it's a fun little thought experiment to imagine Sondheim having written like Rose's turn. I don't know if I can fathom that. Like I, Like I'm trying to think of early Sondheim style. So at this point, we have examples like the Frogs, we've got Evening Primrose, we've got, you know, we're two years away from, so at this point, you have to assume he's done some composing for a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And thinking about even those early works and then comparing it to a gypsy, like, I just can't, I, I have a hard time picturing it. I have a hard time hearing it in my head, what that would be. And I understand that's completely and totally revisionist because the sound in my ear of Gypsy is of this big, brassy uh, Jewel Stein score that works so well. So it's like, how, 
how can you change that? You know, and it just, it becomes, after a while, you're right, it's a thought experiment, but it just becomes almost impossible for me to wrap my head around. I, I think rightly so, because Stein's music for this show is so good. I mean, it's just so good. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's just hit after hit. Each song is so brilliantly crafted and constructed and, and orchestrated so wonderfully and performed so well. They just, even if you only get like three songs in the second act, you're so excited for each of those songs. No, you're, you're there. You're a hundred percent right. And I mean, even nothing more so iconic than the overture itself. And it's funny because when you talk about the overture, you know, it's a medley of tunes that are going to be coming in the show. And it, it's a get your butt in the seats and we're going to dim the lights so that we can start a holdover tradition from opera and, and so on and so forth. Yet somehow the gypsy overture has become so incredibly iconic that it is probably hands down the best theater overture written in the 20th century. And I know we've talked a little bit about Leonard Bernstein's Candide to which I think you or I are in agreement is possibly a better piece of music, but the gypsy overture as an overture is more effective and iconic in what it's set to do. Yeah. I can't argue with you. I, I spent some time. You, you put that statement and point in our little working document for this show. And I tried to think of a piece that I thought was a better overture and I can't, I, it is a brilliant overture. And I, I said in our conversation just before i think part of what makes it so good is like yeah a lot of overture and the general format is to take songs from the show that you're about to hear and kind of stitch them together in a little montage that gives you a, a sort of an aural sense of what it is you're about to experience as an audience member and gypsy overture does that as well but the songs are changed just slightly enough to make them kind of new and exciting and different. And it just, it's so dang good. Hands down. And, and it will always be iconic for me. It, it, it's one of those, it, it's a running joke in my mind. So I don't know if that really counts as a running joke per se. But anyway, that any Broadway pops concert, I have the, the fortune of doing like I feel almost morally obligated. It has to start with the gypsy overture. Like it just, if you're doing a, a pops concert for a symphony orchestra that has, it's just Broadway and you don't include it. What's the point? Like what, 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 what are we doing here? Yeah. Well, I mean, why would you pass up the opportunity to get to yeah. do that piece? No, absolutely. And it's having done this show multiple times, it's a fun overture to conduct. It is great. And you've got, you know, it, it, it's got a hot trumpet book. It's, I mean, hot brass book in general, but like, it's just so much fun. So before we kind of wrap things up, is there anything else you'd like to say about this show, John? I just have one more little Sondheim fun fact regarding Gypsy. Um, if you listen to the original cast album, the original Broadway cast album of, of Gypsy, you will hear Stephen Sondheim voice the father's lines in, uh, what the hell is the name of that song? 
the first one some people can some people is it called some people it's called some people yeah so in in some people when they were making the recording they forgot to call the actor who played the father because he didn't actually have any singing lines but he did have that interjected interjected spoken line uh you won't get 88 cents from me rose that's sondheim saying that on the original album good to know good to know so if you want to hear more of gypsy you have many choices so there is the original 1959 broadway recording with ethel merman which holds up exceptionally well now now like yes that's a it's a good representation of the show there is also a 2003 cast recording with bernadette peters as mama rose and a 2008 recording with patty lapone as mama rose and as much as it pains me to say this because i am not team patty here the 2008 recording is the one if you only have opportunity to listen to one cast album is the one you need to listen to because not only does it have patty lapone in all of her glorious patty lapone-ness as mama rose it actually features laura benanti as louise and is probably an iconic performance of that role which again because of the nature of how it's written especially in the first act is a role that's easy to overlook until you get to the strip routine but her rendition of the show and her her singing on the cast album is amazing and is definitely something worth checking out well that should just about do it for this episode if you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.